Welcome to Life of the School, Episode 9. Hello, everybody. My name is Aaron Matthew, and this is the Life of the School podcast. I'm a biology teacher from Acton, uh, Boxborough Regional High School in Acton, Massachusetts. And on this podcast, I like to sit down with other life science teachers and ask them how they get into the classroom. What are they currently working on and what are their hopes for the future? This week, I sit down with Joanne Purdy. Joanne is a biology teacher at Westboro High School in Westboro, Massachusetts. She's been a public school teacher for 19 years and is currently a biology teacher. She, although she's thought a variety of courses throughout her career, including AP Biology. In Westboro, Joanne was integral in bringing in over $40,000 in grant money to update the biotech equipment of her high school. Over the past six years, Joanne has been actively involved in the biobuilder community. She has written curriculum and led professional development, helping integrate synthetic biology into high school curricula. Joanne holds graduate degrees and undergraduate degrees in the biological sciences. Welcome, Joanne. Hello, Aaron. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's great to great to talk to you. We are uh, luxuriously in a uh, one of these rare Monday uh, off days where we don't have school and everybody else has work. <laughs> we are <laughs> sitting here with my coffee and my pajamas in my backyard. Yeah, yeah, and I only have like ten hours of grading to do later on today. So, um, <laughs> you know, me the, as well. <laughs> the, these these lovely off days that we have. So, uh, yeah, uh, we've known each other for uh, for uh, gosh, I guess it's been about six years through BioBuilder. Yeah. Um, and, yep. Or and, more. Or more. Yeah. I it, I'm trying to remember. I it's like a blur now. How long ago that first uh, that first meeting was where we sat down at MIT. Um, and heard about this crazy thing called synthetic biology, which I knew nothing about um, before I sat down and thinking, yeah. thinking about how that's changed, uh, changed both my thinking about teaching and, and science um, over the last, you know, uh, last six years or so. Yep, it's, it certainly has. And I remember when we were sitting there just thinking, like, what is this all about? Just like, you know, it took a long time to really understand the, the purpose behind why we were all really there. And then I remember toward the end and after leaving thinking, okay, now I understand. Now that makes more sense to me and, and all the doors that open from um, working with Natalie at BioBuilder. Yeah, and you were, you were actually ahead of me then because it was the second summer, I think it was the second summer, where she had us back. And um, yeah. I was working on uh, the yeast module uh, with her. Uh, looking at the the synthetic yeast that that orange yeast that makes beta carotene, and we were sitting yeah. we were sitting down and um uh, she had me it was the first time I'd ever run PCR, um, yeah and so she had she sort of gave me the protocol and I ran PCR and I ran the gel and I got the answer and she, I basically was able to tell you know what was happening with the mutants what genes were dropping out and I turned to her and I'm like great so we figured it out and she's like no yeah. now we've started now we get to do the engineering. <laughs> And that was the moment. Yeah. I remember that moment very clearly standing in her lab going, oh, that's what you mean that engineering and biology are completely different. <laughs> right, 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 right. That, and that was like the turning moment. Because the first year, I, I think I, I left that and I just turned it over in my head. And I, I, I applied the stuff that we learned that first summer, but it's still very in a much a, a biology context, the stuff that I had always been doing. And it wasn't until that moment where I had my hands on this stuff, um, and I was in her lab that I was like, oh, okay, now now I get it, and now we can move forward. 
right. It, it came to life for you. Yeah, yeah, that was great. So uh, I just want to, I'm going to get into it. Um, I love to have a, at least a, the same opening question for everybody, but we'll take a, a few different uh, twists and turns. So I'm curious, uh, sure. how did you become a science teacher? What uh, did you do before teaching? What led you into the classroom? You know, that's a good question. <laughs> One I get all the time. Um, you know what? So I, I was a biology major. I never had any interest in teaching at all, ever. I never knew what I wanted to do with it. I thought about, you know, consultation work and um, I, I focused in wildlife and fisheries biology and conservation. And you know what? When I was a college student, I was in, I went to UMass Amherst, loved it. And I was in the marching band and I had amazing teacher, uh, amazing instructor, George Parks. He was my band director. And he, along with a lot of the other staff in the marching band, just changed my whole life in many ways about teaching and learning and being a part of a community. And it wasn't until I, you know, I finished with my brand new bachelor's degree and I started doing some research. I worked for the Department of the Interior for a little while doing fisheries research on Atlantic salmon. And I did some bird research too. Um, but, you know, it was, a, it was a year or so after I graduated and just, you know, doing research and being that bench scientist. And, you know, it just, it didn't really light my fire. It just, it didn't really feel like the right thing at the right time. And so what I ended up doing was I ended up uh, doing research <clears throat> at night because I could use the equipment whenever I wanted to. And then during the day, I would substitute teach. And then at night, I would do research. And then I said, you know, maybe this teaching thing is kind of a thing for me. I spent a lot of time um, doing teaching type things as a college student in the marching band with some leadership roles. And so what ended up happening was I, I cut down my hours for research and working for, for different professors and and I went to school at night for a teaching license. And then, oddly enough, like the next year, um, I got hired in a school district with no student teaching, no real classroom experience, like absolutely nothing, and kind of got thrown to the wolves. And I've been there ever since. You know, I, I thought I was going to take some different paths. And, you know, I thought about going to pharmacy school and lots of other things. But, but actually, I ended up taking um, a particular position in a school that was just absolutely amazing. And then I realized that, you know what, I'm in it. I'm hooked in. This is a long haul. I'm in it for, I'm in it for a long time. And now that, you know, I've been doing this for 20 years, um, that, you know, you realize what impact you make on young people. And I think, I think that's the thing that, especially as a teacher, that just keeps you going. The, the relationships that you make with young people, and if you learn some biology along the way, you know, even better. But really it's about, you know, making a difference to those young people every day. And so I'm in it, and I, I never, ever thought that I would be, but, but here we are, you know, almost 20 years later. Yeah, well, you, I mean, to go from substitute teaching um, and, yeah. and, that's, <laughs> and, and then say, yeah, I want more of this. Um, yeah. Even when I started <laughs> Crazy, teaching, huh? I used to look at say, like, boy, being a beginning teacher is hard, but I don't, I don't want to be a sub. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. So I'm curious what it's hard. Yeah, I, I'm curious what graduate program you got yourself involved in. So what I what I started doing was I started um, taking some classes at Worcester State at night just because it was close to my home. I lived out in the middle of nowhere in Petersham, Massachusetts, like right on the Quabbin Reservoir. And so I started taking some classes at Worcester State just because it was the closest place and I could make it there in time. So I I started there. And then I um, started teaching in Lemonster for a little while. And the closest place for me um, at the time, just based on where I was living, was Fitchburg State. 
So Fitchburg State had a, a good program, and it was affordable, and I could make it back and forth. So um, I did my master's work there. Yeah, and actually, Fitchburg State, um, I think it's now Fitchburg State Fitchburg University. Fitchburg State University, yeah. yeah. All of the state colleges in Massachusetts have switched over to university. And I got to tell you, um, I took a whole bunch of uh, biology classes there when I was, you know, an early They're teacher. great. They're great. Um, They're great. I, I took a field ecology class uh, out there uh, with a colleague of mine when I first started teaching acting, and we would go out there, and it was a little bit of classroom work, and then she just, the professor took us out everywhere, and um, we went, we did field trips every week with a class would just meet at a location, and we would do plant identification, and we did all of this phylogeny and stuff. It was it was a fantastic class, and I also took an embryology I class. Wonder, I wonder, yeah. as did I, I wonder if we traveled in the same circles back then. I wouldn't be surprised if we overla- overlapped, although I think the timing was right. you were already in the classroom at this. I took those probably closer to 15 years ago. Um, but, so did I. Oh, okay. <laughs> so we very easily <laughs> we, could we have, have traveled. We very did easily have, could have um, the same classes. I think I had George Babbage for embryology. Yeah, I think I had George too, although, that, yeah, that one was even later because he taught that class forever. Um, yeah, so. And I then I don't remember who. Who I had for ecology. I, I remember the field ecology was taught by a woman who was was great. Um, and I if, the weird thing is I took it with a um, a colleague of mine whose um, whose background was basically field. Uh, he was collecting um, is part of his graduate degree. He was collecting insects in the field, and then doing the identification. So to identify plants for him was like, oh, this is this is child's play. Um, you know, yeah. they, he, they gave us a, 50, a list of fifty plants, and plants compared to insects in terms of identification is so. Easy. Much, so much easier. So yeah. he he blew right through that, and uh, I remember walking out of the of the the practical that we had at the end, um, and um, she asked me how I did, and I you know we talked back and forth, and I told her you know there were a couple I thought that were tough, and then you know my colleague Fred standing next to me, and he says to her you know why aren't you asking me how I did? And she said oh I'm going to use yours as the key, because um, <laughs> that was that, that was the nice humbling thing of taking a class with Fred. He was he was amazing at that, but yeah it was a I, I loved the the classes I took through. State, I so. did. You know what? I did too. And I have a lot of. St- I write a lot, as you probably do too. I write a lot of college recommendations mm-hmm. every year, and I have a lot of students that say, "You know what? I'm really interested in biology." And I say, "You know what? Take a second look at Fitchburg because this, I took some spectacular classes there. I had some wonderful professors. I remember I had Meg Holy for for some botany classes, and just I had some great professors, great courses." You know, and people can say what they want, let you know, like it or not, about state schools and this. But I'll tell you, I had a spectacular experience from them. Yeah, and no if, doubt. And if you've been to any of the um, state colleges, uh, state universities lately, um, I know that I, the Wabakia Project, uh, has been meeting at uh, Bridgewater State, and they have this gorgeous mm. integrated science building. I mean, a, stunning, yes. stunning. And and they also have a new building at uh, at Framingham State. So. Um, so that's I I've, I've been super impressed by the facilities. I think that would have been the the knock on them. Have you if you'd asked me ten years ago, um, you know, like oh how about there? And not that you ma- I mean I was at UMass around the same time you were. Uh, not that we had you know shiny uh, lab facilities when we were out there. Um, like it, they no, have now. <laughs> no 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 no. But uh, <laughs> no. But you're absolutely right. The people and now you match the people with these amazing facilities. Um, so it turns out we are now doing a, uh, Uni- Massachusetts university, uh, little infomercial for people there, but, um, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing. And, you know, I, I do love those, uh, those classes that I took, you know, at this point in the career and also, you know, with uh, a family and, and, you know, not quite as young kids, but still having kids, it's tough to 
sign up for, you know, three credit graduate classes and going out. But they also, yeah. they also yeah. made it, they made it pretty, you know, uh, pretty flexible. Um, I know I definitely yeah, took certainly. one of those classes when uh, my oldest was, was very young. Um, and they, they set up a schedule that makes it manageable to go and tackle some of those classes. Right, so. right. Like every other Saturday morning, every other Thursday evening, yep. things like that. Yeah, yeah so. definitely. Definitely highly recommend it. Yeah, so that's a, that's our little uh, professional development plug for uh, <laughs> for looking at your right. state universities. Right, right. So um, this is a this, this is actually one of the first interviews I've had during the school year in the in the grind, and I'm, I was thinking about this um, as I was going through my piles of grading. You know, I've, I'm just yes. in the process. <laughs> I'm just in the process <laughs> I have of the same piles. <laughs> yeah, I'm transitioning right now between um, you know our opening units. Uh, in a couple of my classes are ecology, and then we switch into matter and energy. But I know everyone sort of has a different um, a, a track with what they're doing. So I'm kind of curious what you yeah. are working with with your students. What where are yeah. you in the curriculum? So our so right now I have all standard level biology, and almost all of my students are sophomores. So they've all come from physical science, and our physical science curriculum is a little bit of physics, a little bit of chemistry. And so when they come to me, they're supposed to have a little bit of physics and a little bit of chemistry. So we try to take it from there. So we try to, we start with basic characteristics of living things and basic science methodology. Mm-hmm. And then we move into um, water, pH, biochemistry, and right into macromolecules is how we've been doing it. Um, when I taught AP for many years in a different district, we started with ecology, which I really, really, really love doing. Um, and I would, you know, you know, we're always kind of, you know, bantering back and forth. Of what do we start with and what do we end with and where do we go in the middle? And in a lot of ways, like, it kind of doesn't matter where you start because you can kind of almost, you can kind of start almost anywhere. Um, so long as you loop it all back around and circle it all back around, you can go big to small or small to big. Um, so right now we're going small to big, um, which is good and bad. It's It's good because they have a little bit of, um, physical science background, so we just kind of, you know, you know, pick kind of pick up where they left off. Um, but it's bad because I think most students are more able to think big to small instead of small to big. Hmm. So it's kind of a, a little bit of both. So we've just kind of finished with uh, water and pH, and finished our water and pH labs. And so it, this week we'll mo- start moving into biochemistry, carbohydrates, lipids, proteins. And that will move us into enzymes and cells, and then then on, and then on and on from there to yeah. from cells and cellular processes to genetics, evolution. So we end with ecology, anatomy, and physiology. The other problem, and it really is kind of a problem that I that I face, is that my students still have to take MCAS. Yeah. So, so you know, it, it's unfortunate in that. You know, I feel the clock ticking, as we all do every day. You know, every day is a race, right? Every day is a race, especially when you teach an AP. Every day is a race. Um, but with my students, and I actually, I calculated it out last year, actually, that, you know, we have 180, whatever it is, days of school. Plus, in my school district, we have a seven-day rotation, so you don't see your students once every seven days. Mm-hmm. Plus, of all of the interruptions that you have for this and that and this and that, I calculated it out that I get 126 days with students, mm. 126 days. And those, and our class, we have no lab period. So our block time is 55 minutes. 
So I get 126 55 minute chunk. I know it's crazy to get to get through everything and make relationships with young people and get them to to love science so they love learning so that they'll stay with me for all that time. And it is a it's a big challenge. It is a big big mountain to climb. So, so that's kind of where we're at at the moment. The good news, um, I mean, I am somebody who, I, you know, with my, my regular biology classes, I don't really need to worry about the MCAS. My, my honors biology students are, are fine. They're no, they're, they're no worry about doing well in the MCAS. Um, but I do teach the alternative program uh, kids, and those kids that come from this really varied background. Um, uh, it's yeah. not uncommon for me to get a new student in in March. Um, yeah. into, into that yeah. program, um, which means, you know, you're talking really less than 10 weeks uh, to the state exam. Um, and I've put, yeah. to, I've put together a system where, you know, it's not the most elegant teaching in the world, but I can get them through. Um, I, can, right. I can absolutely get them through uh, into an MCAS prep in, you know, in six to eight weeks, no problem, and get there where yeah. they get over the content. But it's not, you know, it's not great teaching and learning. And you it really does it ends up being that you're sort of brute forcing content through. Yeah. Um, in it's there. got one, it has one purpose only yeah. and that's it. And yeah. you're both going to live through it and moving on. Yep. So I, I am curious what happens when we make the shift to the, the new standards that they released yeah. last spring. Cause it really is. It's only, you know, as it goes, we're basically going down two from, more years. Yeah. Two more years. Although they, right now it says that the assessment is to be announced. They haven't committed to what the yeah. high school is going to look like. Uh, which means I think that they're probably still working on what will be the pilot and, you know, how many years of pilot and that sort of thing. But I feel like it's fairly inevitable that we will have a state exam that is based off of those standards and they just haven't, you know, worked out what yeah. that format's going to be in the time. You know, I took a course over the summer through um, Brunel and Kavanaugh Consulting, which is spectacular if anybody wants to take any of their classes. Um, and they you can earn credit through Worcester State if you want. Uh, Brunel and Kavanaugh, Art Brunel and Carol Kavanaugh, spectacular course, and I'd like to take more of them. Mm-hmm. But then again, I, I fall in the same boat that you do <laughs> with younger children, and where how do you find an hour here and there? Um, and and that was the course. It was um, incorporating the next generation learning standards into science classes. And you know what it means? One thing if you teach elementary and middle school, it means another thing if you teach high school and and where it all falls in. It was it was a very good course, and it was. It was really helpful. I was actually the only high school teacher in it, um, but it, it was a good course in it, and it, it, it gears you up toward the future. And I think the, the next generation learning standards for science are, are very, very, very good. And I think that it is going to be, once we really get into full swing with those, I think many classrooms are going to look very, very different which for many of them is good. I mean, I'm going to guess that you and I are of this, you know, mm-hmm. kind of cut from the same stone where it's an active classroom. There's a lot going on. You're not walking into the door and saying, okay, chapter one, you're not doing that. Yeah. Um, but I think there are some cl- science classes that are still doing that, um, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And I think that the next generation learning standards are really going to push and force uh, people to think about things in a different way. Yeah, and I, I really do think I do think those uh, those standards when you get into the the question of, you know, what's going to go on when you you have those science practices, and mm. it's it, the question isn't necessarily going to be about, 
you know, spit back these 10 facts no. about cells. It's going to be, right. here is Can this, you think? Yeah, yeah, here is this. <laughs> and uh, use your brain. Yeah, so here's this investigation that would take place. And in this investigation, they use these variables. And, and right. there, I think it's going to be a question about that, that really gets the students to push a little bit more on yeah. the, the work and the practice of being a scientist. And um, right. I, I, you know, I, I think this is something that I, I've been working on, but I'm still curious to see what it will look like. Um, because I can envision yeah. this is an opportunity to be really creative about yeah. assessment. Um, you know, I've yeah. basically been giving... You know, I've been at AB for 17 years, um, and I haven't always taught the the honors classes. But I mean, my my tests at in, in, in Acton, um, you know, we as I said, we don't really worry about the MCAS. But our our first year bio classes, particularly with the honors, we set them up to take um, you know the SAT biology test at the end of the year. Right. Um, right, we, right. We sort of set them up there. You know, they're 80 percent multiple choice. Yeah. Um, and and two open responses. And the open yeah. responses ask them to push push there, and there's a lot of multiple choices where we give, um, you know, there'll be four or five questions where <clears throat> it'll be an experiment or a little short reading with some follow up. So we definitely include those types of questions in there, and I don't think, um, while multiple choice questions have their limitations, I, I do think you can ask some critical thinking questions using that. Yeah. One. But when yeah, absolutely, but when you shift from um, you know, 75% of what you're doing is content to 50% of it being content. I do think the assessments are going to change and yeah. what you ask people to do is going to change. And I'm really curious as to see, you know, how creative they get with these assessments. Cause right now nobody's really, everybody's sort of working on it. All the States that have adopted NGSS, they're starting to play around with them. And I've been looking around to see like, well, what does it look like? What is, what is an assessment that's NGSS, look like. And I'm waiting to yeah. see what they look like. Cause I, I would like, you know, I see a lot of performance assessment stuff out there, you know, run a unit where the final product is, you know, a, a, a mini poster or a, a claim evidence reasoning or a, a this or that. Um, but at the end of the year, we're going to ask them to take some sort of test. So I'm kind of curious what that assessment ends up looking like. Um, and yeah. I, I think it's, you know, it could very be very much be exciting. Um, but I, I agree with you that, um, just in a lot of ways, similar to the the way the AP has changed, um, and I know that you're not currently working on the AP, but uh, a couple of years ago when they made that shift um, and they they slashed the content and they really yeah. played up the practices. Um, you know, yep. for for me, it I was, did one year. Yeah, like I did one year with the the new structure of it. Yeah, and that's you and know, probably next year. Yeah, and that's I, I will tell you. Um, you know, we do so much less content. Um, and it's, it allows for it to be so much more active. And, um, you know, we Good. actually we actually had a situation, and it, it's interesting. I think, you know, I used to always make the comment, you know, you mentioned the, the, different, the different interruptions, uh, particularly the unexpected interruptions. And in the past, um, you know, if you go back five, ten years, when we would have an interruption and we'd lose something, we'd go into our unit schedule and say, all right, well, we just lost a day. What are we going to cut? And we would there only... goes the respiratory system. <laughs> no, well, you know what we'd always cut. We'd always cut the activity. You know, we'd keep the PowerPoint notes, and we we'd keep the activity. And um, oh. and and you know, I and I re I remember using this as an argument with my colleagues who I co-teach with that I said this points to the problem. We are so bound to our notes that we need to change. And we need to get away from this. And I remember, you know, because we went, I, I fortunately didn't go through this this sort of transformation alone 
uh, moving towards a more more student centered class. But I teach an extremely traditional school, forty seven minute mm-hmm. blocks every single day. Um, mm-hmm. You know, short periods. No lab block. No, uh, well, I have, a lab a la- I have a lab block for AP, but no lab block for yeah. my regular bio. Um, yeah. I mean, so yeah, 55 minutes, I, I would, you know, there's, there's days that I would love to have eight more minutes and that's, you know, yeah. when we have a regular schedule and then a lot of times we have special schedules where the schedule goes down to 40 minute periods because oh, there's this, you know, we have a, an extended advisory or we have this. So the, the time is so, so precious, but what we would always do is if something got cut, we would, we would cut an activity. And we would get through the notes a little faster. And that was our adjustment no, so, to our schedule. You know, actually, so it's interesting that you say that because I, I, I think, honestly, I'm the opposite. Mm. And, and, I think I've, and I think I've always been opposite where I remember talking with a colleague a long time ago. I'm one that started out doing some BioBuilder stuff with us, actually. And, you know, we said a long time ago, we said, you know what? If we lose our time, what are we going to do about that? We said, you know what? We're going to make sure that whatever you know that you know well. Yes. And if we miss a few things, we're going to, and we will be very clear, like these are the things that we missed. If, you know, for the AP exam, these are the things that we missed. Yes. <laughs> so these are the things to go on your own and learn on your own, find on your own. You can come in anytime you like. But I think, so I think I've kind of been opposite. I would keep the, I would keep the activities and, and ditch the topic because yeah. I, I just can't reach it. And my, and my mentality about that was, do less better. Yeah. Pick those things. Yeah. Pick those things that, that, that you really want to send the message home with. See if you can, you know, teach them in a holistic way so that you touch every aspect of them, keep the activity, lose the content. Well, and I, I think this is now the second time I can say that you, you were ahead of me um, on that, but I, I'm there with I'm you. I'm not ahead of you. <laughs> you, you know, and, and on this thinking, you were ahead of me on this thinking because it took me um, and my colleagues several years to get to that point. And I, I agree with you. And the, the, the upshot of that is we, we had a similar thing this year where, you know, we had an interruption to our schedule. And um, I went to, you know, I went to, to Brian, who I teach uh, AP with, and I said to him, I said, you know what, um, I would like, I, I don't want to sacrifice any units. I, what we're going to do is I think we should restructure our grading for quarter one. Um, mm. And, and, and <laughs> know, that we're, know that we're not going to get that, uh, that third test in quarter one, just because yeah. we could have, yeah. I could have, yeah. cu- I could have cut back some stuff, but as it was, I was already looking and, um, you know, the new AP, uh, it's very predicated on doing an initial lab, um, having kids establish a baseline and then, and then doing a yep. follow-up investigation. And yep. we do tons and tons of those. And I was already sort of struggling with how I was going to get my follow-up lab in getting in towards the end of the quarter. And then we, then we lost a, a couple of extra days of time and, and when I did that, I went back to him and I said, no, I don't want to cut anymore. In fact, I want to go the other way. I want to, yeah. I want to kick the test down another week and say, yeah. we're just going to get two tests in. And I'd rather them go through the proper process of science and not right. rush them through these, these concepts. And I, neither of the two labs that we have coming up, I was willing to sacrifice any aspect of the process. I didn't want to shorten their time. I wanted them to do the baseline. I wanted them to design their follow-up. Um, I didn't want to short those because I felt like that was the meaningful piece. And I think for me, the I, when I st- stopped back after making that argument, I was like, yep, so this, you know, last, you know, eight years of process where we've been talking about, you know, having labs drive the science, have have investigations drive the science, I'm there. That's, that's me. Yep. That's yeah. how, I, and you know what, I've, op- and I'll tell you this, there's a lot of pushback in that. Um, yep. 
but that's how I operate. Like I am an activities-based, lab-based teacher. And some topics you can backfill and some topics you can front load. Like, but many of, I think, I think many people or many students really like, let's do the lab act when we've just introduced the topic, let's do this big lab activity. And now we've got a common experience that we can all talk about and let's, and let's discuss this. And you know what? Um, some things you have to backfill, like when you do DNA electrophoresis, you, you have to back, I'm sorry, you have to front load, literally front load that one, because... <laughs> just make, make sure you because, run, to, run to red, just that. <laughs> right, run to red, um, because they, you can't just do that thing and expect them to, to understand. That one, you have to give them a ton of background before you go for that one. But other things, like when we do investigations with water and, you know, things with macromolecules, like th- these are things that are familiar to them, and especially things like ecology, you know, these are things that are familiar to them already. So just take them where they, from where they are, do the activity, do the lab, have a common experience with kids, and now fill in all the spaces from there. And something I like to do a lot with students is to figure out where they are at the beginning of most topics, I really like to do um, like a just a literally like a 15-minute true/false. Here are 10 questions. You decide true or false. Don't talk to anybody else. Mm-hmm. You know, true or false, true or false, true or false. And now, okay. Now look. Now talk with the person next to you. Like read the questions back and forth to each other. True, false, true. And then we discuss. You know, which ones really are true? Which ones really are false? And it kind of gives you a sense of where they're at. And, Take them from where they're at, and then and then go from there. And you know what you said? You were talking about you know content and concepts, and you know do you just drive it all in and shovel it all in? <laughs> you know that is that is, and I'm going to do this one year. I'm really going to do this. Like that is the elephant in the room all the time, <laughs> all the time. That we have so much to give and so little time to give it in, <laughs> but they have so much more time to take from us than we have to give to them. And the elephant in the room all the time is how much have they really learned? How much have they really learned from all of the notes you could give or PowerPoint presentations, all this content that is that you are so passionate about? How much have they really taken away from that? Yeah. And the, the unfortunate answer is probably nowhere near as much as you would like them to. So the elephant in the room is how much are they actually learning? Yeah. So one year I'm going to do this. I'm going to put pictures of elephants all over the room <laughs> and give them names. Like this one will be ecology. This one will be cellular respiration. And they'll, they'll have all of their names. And so what I've definitely found um, for 101 reasons and tons of evidence to support it is that the things that they remember are the things that they felt invested in the thing you did a project on, the thing you worked with somebody else on, the thing that you talked with your neighbor on. I do so many quick little 10-minute, 15-minute, like little quick do-nows, tickets to leave. You use all of your notes. You talk to all of your peers. And you know what? They're 10 points. Use all your notes. Talk to all your peers. They're 10 points. And I say to students, like, these are the easy points to get. Get all of them because the quiz or the test, like, those are the hard points to get. You know, when I'm asking you, what do you know? Just you right here, right now. You can't talk to anybody else. Like those are the hard points to get. So these are the easy points to get. Get all of them. And you know, I say to students all the time, biology is a language-based science. It's not like chemistry or physics. You know, it is a language-based science. You have to talk. You have to talk to each other. You have to say the word. You have to say the words correctly. 
You have to use the words correctly. So talk. And and they, it takes a little while. And I know that I think, like in my head, I think other people do the same things I do. But I guess I'm wrong about that. I think... <laughs> I think I think not. <laughs> the well, more people I talk to, I'm like, don't you, don't you do that that way? Oh no, not really. I don't know. Um, so and I, I definitely have found that, and, and that's what students like. And you know, I, I know that a lot of teachers do. Um, I talk, a lot of teachers use Google Classroom, and I use Google Classroom as well. Um, I'm, I'm not necessarily plugging anything for Google, but mm-hmm. but you know, we use Google Classroom. Um, and I do a couple of assignments where they just turn it in online because students like that. Like, they like the, the concept of hitting the button. Yeah. And, you know, it, it speaks to the executive functioning part of students, and they can just hit the button, and it turns in, and they like that. But what I don't like about that is that I want that, that piece of paper that they handed in in my hand. I want to write on it, and I want to give it back to them, and I want to look at them eyeball to eyeball and say you did a great job with this. Well done. Or I want to be able to look at them eyeball to eyeball and say, whoa, dude, what happened to question like five and six here? You know? Yeah. So, you know, I think Google Classroom has its, has its place, but I really think that the teaching and learning in a classroom really comes from that relationship that you have with those kids. And I know that many of us as science people, you know, our minds think scientifically. We, we, we didn't go to school well, probably most of us, did not go to school for psychology. You know, we went to school for science. And now we love science and we love teaching science. But we have to be mindful that we're teaching kids. And yeah. <laughs> as much well, as we want to teach science, we're teaching kids. And, you know, we got to meet them where they're at. And that's not an easy thing. Well, I think a big piece of what you, you've been saying here is, you know, what do they take home? And, and in my experience, it's... Um, it really is the things that they have an emotional connection with. So, you yeah. know, if they if they run a lab where, you know, we always do at the end of the year in, in AP, we always have this um, activity where they the students design an investigation in a small group, yeah. and they do so with um, with a group of, uh, of other students, and uh, it's always based off a model organism. So, you know, I've mm. got one group who's working with fruit flies, and I've got one yep. group that's uh, usually doing a behavior thing with mice, and I've got another group that's do that's growing a rabbitopsis, and mm-hmm. they need to you know take care of those creatures for a little while, and they need to design the experiment, and they have to run a baseline, and I give them a lot of lab time where they're you yep. know churning this out, and the experience of that, you know, the the kids, you know, obviously the kids who play with the mice get super attached to them. Um, to the yeah. point where I almost always end up the somebody from the group of, of the mouse group almost always takes a mouse or two home, home over the summer. Yeah. They like they they beg yeah. they beg their parents and somebody somebody's parents lets them take them home and that becomes their pet. Yeah. But even yeah. the ones who are doing fruit flies, they become, you know, they they, they become emotionally attached to the process. And I think that, you know, yeah. what you're saying about that, um, you know, the personal connection. I think that's part of that emotional component. You you can talk to kids, um, you know, online or have them post things online. And there are definitely ways to connect with students online. Uh, I have certain students who I have, you know, 25 email thread questions with where they ask me a question, I go back and then they go back. And, and that's actually how we develop the rapport. Um, my classes yep. are big and, and I don't really, they either the kid is quiet or, you know, it's really hard for them to come up with those questions in that yeah. space at that time, but when they're sitting home and they're doing it, they develop comfort. And through that yeah. emailing yeah. back and forth, they get that rapport. 
but it is a personal yeah. connection they develop. Connection. But yep. a, a lot of the online tools, while they do allow for some efficiency, you're right. The, there has to be a match of that personal connection that you get um, in there. And for me, you know, as a biology teacher, I, I love I love the process of science. I get excited about it. There's an emotional connection yep. to running a lab and doing an investigation. I mean, I'd said it earlier. I remember running my first PCR uh, you know, and running the gels in Natalie's lab and remember when I got the idea of synthetic biology, it was personal. It was yeah. in a lab setting. It like, it was, there's an emotional component to having done that lab, done it myself the first time and remembering it. And then a, a connection that popped out of that. I think that a lot of the pull that we get to do with science, because we get so much hands-on and in investigation pieces, if we, um, open up just a little and we stop relying solely on, you know, the cookbook lab, the one that's got the oh, answer. The and we, canned labs yeah, have got to go. And we let the kids, the let the kids ask a question or make a choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we give them that you little figure extra it out. time, you know, yeah. and, and let them, and let them not succeed. Let them run a lab that, that fizzles out. And then you have to ask them why, why did it fizzle out? Why do you think it fizzled out? And I think that's a, a, a really crucial aspect. That was, my, that was my, yeah. You know. That was my C. elegans. That was my <laughs> C. elegans lab. Here, you figure it out. You see how it goes. You figure it out yourself. Yep. And um, yeah, we had tons of contamination. We didn't get results that we wanted, yeah. or that we would have hoped that we wanted, and 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 it didn't it didn't go well. And then I think I think especially newer teachers or less seasoned teachers really really struggle with that. Yeah. Like now, what do I do? Yeah. Well, because Whereas you're, you're supposed the to be old the timers <laughs> like. <laughs> But the, the old timers like you and me go, oh, it didn't work. Bummer. Yeah. <laughs> Bummer. All right. Moving forward. Yeah. What would you we know, do why didn't it work? Yeah. What did we learn? Yep. Moving on. Yeah. All right. Great. I think you, right. we've hit about 12 of the questions I had planned on asking you. <laughs> uh, on Perfect. Here. But, yeah, we've, we've, we've been flying through. Um, I do want to ask you, because um, I, I had mentioned sure. it in the intro, um, you have gotten a ton of um, biotech money. Uh, or grant oh, money I for have, biotech yes. stuff. And so I'm kind of yeah. curious, you know, what, how has that, uh, the addition of that equipment changed teaching and learning in your classes? What, what is that, um, that infusion of grant money allowed you to do? So uh, that's a good question. And so when I first, um, I changed positions, I worked in one school and I, I switched over to another school. And when I got to the new school, um, they had very little lab equipment. And some teachers had partnerships with here, there, and everywhere, and those partnerships would let would let them loan. They could borrow equipment and then give the equipment back. But it wasn't it wasn't helpful though for people that weren't part of that partnership. And I said, okay, so I'm going to take the job here. This is something we have got to work on right away. And you know, my administrators were very supportive. And I'm Natalie Caldwell over at MIT. You know, Saint Natalie, help me out and. Um, help put this, um, put my name and my school on this grant. And, you know, we went back and forth a little bit with needs. And so I'm very lucky in that um, the, the first year uh, when I had no equipment um, because all the grant stuff hadn't gone through, the first year I had to drive out to MIT. Mm-hmm. St. <laughs> Natalie helped me out again. And I, I got all the gel boxes, incubator, like filled up the back of the SUV with all of this equipment, used it, and then I drove it back. But now we have our own and we can, you know, just like every, you know, just like most um, classrooms, you know, you have your own biotech equipment so you can use it, you know, when you need and when you want. And it makes such a difference for kids. And I will never forget that day. It was, it was November, uh, November into December when all of the materials started to um, float in. 
And my classroom was absolutely painted with boxes everywhere, completely and totally covered with boxes. And it was the fifth period of the day. And I said, okay, it's like Christmas. Everybody grab a box, start opening the boxes. And we took everything out. We put everything away. And it was it was just such a gift. And the community has been incredibly supportive as well. I also got some um, some more grants through the Westboro Education Foundation, um, smaller grants, but, you know, for more specific pieces of equipment. And it, it's just, it's been great that, you know, it's ours. We can use it whenever we want and use it however we want. And it, it has made uh, a huge difference. Yeah, certainly. That, that's great. Yeah. And it, you're, you're absolutely right. Cause I, I know that we, we had gone through a similar process where we got a, a pretty big grant through the BioTeach um, grant yeah. money. And that, you know, that then opened up a whole bunch of opportunities to run gel electrophoresis um, yep. and do some things like that. But we were still trying to borrow a thermocycler uh, whenever time, whenever we wanted yep. to do PCR. And, you know, as I, as I said, I, this, is, this is equipment that I, I worked in a lab when I was in college, but this was not something that was an everyday piece of no. lab equipment, you know, back 20 years nope. ago. So I had nope. never really had that opportunity. Um, and it wasn't until I, you know, I, I had done it and I sort of was able to it. And I had, I'd remembered before that, that year, I think part of the reason why Natalie put me on that project is because I had been emailing her like troubleshooting because we would run these, we would run these labs at our school with this borrowed thermocycler and we'd run it and the controls wouldn't work. And so we'd run the gel out and we'd get no amplification on the control, which clearly pointed mm. to that amplification was our problem. But then we would like yep. take this this thermocycler and put it back in the box and ship it back to the people who lent it to us. And yeah, it was nice that they yeah. lent it to us, but we had no ability to troubleshoot the lab, which is right. Which meant year in year out, we were kind of running this series of of labs. What a waste! What yeah, a waste. where we weren't able to get there. So um, part of the, part of the reason that I think you know she allowed me to run that was from some of the conversations we had had during the year where I was trying to figure out what all of this meant and and how that yeah. worked. And then I was able to buy some, um, they're called uh, open PCR. Um, they were uh, these little uh, eight, well, no, they're 16 well um, uh, PCR machines that uh, you build yourself. Yep. Uh, they come. Okay. Oh, yeah. Not are, to interrupt. Have you looked into a mini PCR? Have I you? have looked into the mini PCR and we're probably going to end up needing to replace um, the open PCR ones that we've now had for four or five years because uh, 600 build your Six hundred dollar build your own thermocyclers do last for a couple of years, but one of the mm -hmm. two is starting to get a little uh, a little funky, and I has not been really. I got a couple of weird results last year where uh, one of the machines seemed to work, but the other one wasn't. Um, but I was able to buy two of them, which meant I was able to run thirty two um, thirty two samples um, yeah. using the two machines. And so I think I want to buy a, some new mini PCRs to replace the ones I have. But having yeah. your own equipment where you can run the samples yeah. and say... When you want. <laughs> yeah. So like when the AP was over and I, br I bring him in my kids, I, I could run a sample and say, wait a minute, so this didn't work. Let's run it again. Let's run it yeah. again. Or I would do it on my own time. Yeah. And and several... Yeah. I mean, there were days that I spent, you know, a, an extra week running samples after the kids had done it because I was like, all right, let's make this work. And having the equipment on hand and being able to go through that scientific process of you know, all right, we think it was this, you know, maybe it was not that, maybe I'd have a couple of kids, volunteer kids to come in and help me. Uh, it was a huge uh, leap forward for us to, to move in our biotech. And now what we have is we have the kids asking new questions um, and, mm. you, and you have me asking new questions and then going through the process of, of being more um, bold in the labs that we're doing 
Um, I certainly, yeah. certainly have taken on several projects and, and several thoughts over the last few years, and some of which haven't panned out, but I would have never even had the, the thought process to tackle them um, had right. it not been for the, the, that pres- the presence of that equipment and the ability to troubleshoot. Um, so it's, it's, it, I know it's changed the way I at least approach and think about some of the biotech labs that we do. Yeah, because you, you can actually answer your question now. <laughs> you can yeah. say, gee, I wonder what's going on on the genetic level, and now you can answer that question with your PCR machine. <laughs> yeah, well, and the other, the other interesting thing that I found was, um, you know, I, I used to think of the biotech stuff as, well, it was the stuff we did in our molecular genetics unit. And over the last couple of years, I have really started to rebel against that, and it's kind of kind of like, you know, you don't just teach the microscope in one unit. Like the microscope is an important right. tool, and you can use the microscope right. in cells, but you could also use right. it when talking about plants, or you could do it when you're talking about the human body, or you could like or you, the elegans, <laughs> yeah, or or evolution, or yeah, you can yeah. use you can use this tool as a tool yeah. when talking about any number of topics. And I think that's right. when you have the equipment at hand, you have the gel box and you have the, uh, the thermocyclers, you can then start asking questions in ecology and you can mm. and start asking some, some questions in other units during the year that aren't there. You can use this tool, this scientific tool in a variety of different ways. Um, and, right. and I think that that's sort of when you talk about science practices and, and that sort of thing, I, I, I'm hoping that that's going to be how this, um, the use of the tools that we use evolves, that we will introduce the tools that we have for biotech and they won't be locked into that little box of these are the biotech tools in in my school. We use them in December because that's the time we do molecular genetics, but rather we think of it more of that, you know, great synthesis of everything has some connections to genes. Everything has connections to cells. And so let's think of these tools in a much broader sense. Um, so, so in that sense, so you're ahead of me because <laughs> I have, yeah, so I have, uh, you know, this great thermocycler purchased through the um, Massachusetts Life Sciences um, um, with, you know, the help of St. Natalie's grant there. And I haven't had the chance to use it yet, you know, and so I'm looking, I'm looking at this one um, great lab through mini PCR where mm-hmm. uh, maybe you've heard of it, where students can look at their own genotype and phenotype for being able to taste and sense PTC. And you can actually run the gene and you can see it on a molecular level. Um, And so I, they, you know, they just kind of finalized it in the last year or so. And so I think that one's on the list this year. I think I'm going to give it a go with that. Um, But I only have one thermocycler. So I'm thinking about seeing if I can get myself one more like mini PCR machine so I can run more. Yeah. um, run more samples, but my other problem with that, like, there's just like those tidbits, and I think this is what happens. It's how comfortable you are as a teacher with failure. Yeah. You know, when I say this to students all the time, failure is always an option. Yeah. And, um, you know, how comfortable are you with spending, you know, potentially days and days on this thing, and then having it not work? And you want to reach that point as an as a teacher and as an educator that you've invested your time effectively so that things will work. I mean, and of course, there's always that explanation, you know, for students, yeah, well, this is what happens in science. You're going to fail 99 times before you succeed that one time. Um, but if you do that all the time and you only have 126 days, <laughs> then then that becomes really problematic. Yeah. So I think that's kind of <clears throat> like where I'm at is like, I'm, I'm ready to do this thing, but I feel like I need to practice it myself multiple times before 
before I do it with students. And I think a lot of teachers yeah. face that. And but I do think that no, we have. Yeah, I do think there's a breaking point because I will say that the first time, like what really led us to where we are today in terms of biotechnology <laughs> was that was yeah. that process where. I yeah. actually convinced two other teachers who I co-taught with because, and we, we were very, we're unusual in the sense that we are remarkably aligned. Uh, we, we, we work as a team, we divide up the units, we sort of have different people who are on point for the various pieces, which takes a lot of the, um, the load of preparation, um, off mm. and we work very collaboratively and it's hard to get relationships built to the point where you can do that, but it's something we've worked on for a long time. Yeah. And but once I, you do have that, then you're all set. Yeah, it's great. And I, but I went in and I convinced the other two teachers that I work with, um, and it was we did it with the Wabakia project, um, and it yep. was it was the idea that we had that um, we had worked on making our unit our term labs more inquiry based, and I felt like yeah. we had done a really nice job with our quarter one unit, and I felt like we had done really nice with our quarter three. Like these are our big sort of, you know, capstone-ish mm-hmm. lab reports that we have the kids. This is the lab we have the kids do a lab a report on. Mm-hmm. Um, but our quarter two was not, and I felt like it was very cookbook, and it was, and I was really struggling with it because I was like, I couldn't see how to take the lab that we were doing and make it anything other than a cookbook, which meant to me the answer yeah. was we had to do something different. So yeah. we had <clears throat> we had tried the, uh, the process of Wabakia, um, before and uh, we had done it in a few different ways and one of the teachers in particular had had tried it with a couple different groups and every time he had done it it hadn't worked but oh. but what I had said well he had made it work like in a university lab setting like you know that kind of okay. thing but he had never made it work with his students and mm-hmm. and what I said to him as I said I think we should do the Wabakia um, uh, project because I think the Wabakia project is a really great lab that ties in where we're supposed to be ecology based. So it ties a lot of the ecology pieces in. It has all of these molecular techniques. It opens up into evolution if we can get there. So I think it hits all of these points and the students are going to go out and collect the insects. So they're going to make the choices about what samples we're going to run. So I felt like it met a lot of my personal criteria. It broke it out of the box a little bit, but it also had the students making a choice on what they were going to do. And we ran it and we ran it in eight honors biology classes and we got one sample to work out of oh. 48 groups. But it that was, hurts, huh? it, but no, it, it, yes and no. But I actually had told them before, I want to do this. And I want to do this even going in saying it may not work for everybody, but we need to be able to talk to them about the process of, you know, variables, about controls, about all this. Mm-hmm. And we couldn't do that really with the other lab that we had been doing. Like we couldn't even explain the process of science. It was so cookbook. They were looking mm-hmm. for the right answer with it. It was like a, it's a good lab. We actually still do that lab as a way to teach how to do gel electrophoresis, but it didn't hit any of the mm-hmm. lab standards we were really going for. And they basically mm-hmm. were like, well, okay, let's give it a shot. Yeah. And then our students really had a hard time with it because I think we had done a poor job at training them to be scientists. They were very right oriented focused. And coming off mm-hmm. of that, I think it sort of speaks to the conversation we had had the students' discomfort with not getting a result and how they were like, oh, this was such a waste of time. Hearing the kids say that made me say back to the, my fellow teachers, we're not teaching science. We need to, so, we need to reframe so the kids, what science is. Yeah. yeah, so the students have one agenda and we have another. Yeah. <laughs> you know, well, the students see a grade attached to this. And yep. so when something doesn't work, 
that becomes very frustrating to yeah. them. And especially when you've got some of the high flyers and you've got AP and honor students yep. where a grade to them is essential. And what, and so one of the things like I have all standard level biology students right now, and, you know, and they're, they're focused on their grades certainly, but they're definitely more open to like, Oh, what are we going to do now? Like what's yep. next? And they, they, when they walk into the, you know, when an honors and an AP student, when they walk in the door, or I shouldn't say honors and AP student, but when a student is, that's in an honors or an AP class, when they walk in the door, they're prepared for the day. Yeah. When you have a student take, taking a standard level class, they're possibly less prepared for the day because the level of expectation is, is slightly different in a standard level class. And so when they walk in the door, they're like, okay, what are we doing today? You teach me, you run the show, and I'll follow along, go along to get along. Yeah. And so I, I feel like there's a differentiation in students. Like our agenda is the teach the process of science and teach science and teach biology. So we have our agenda, but students yeah. have theirs too. <laughs> well, it's not always the same. I also think that, you know, if <clears throat> I think in our honors and AP classes, you know, again, dialing it back a few years, uh, we had a class that was very much set up that a, a student could come in and just be a passenger. If you were a student, mm. you could oh, yeah. cram a bunch of facts in two days before the test, sit down, spit back those facts, uh, you have, you're a good reader, so you and you had a good critical thinking skills. You didn't really have yeah. to know how to do science particularly well to do well in yeah. our classes. Um, I think right. you needed to be able to read well. You had to be able to uh, integrate a lot of facts, uh, particularly in a short-term basis. Um, but mm-hmm. I don't know that you had to do any science, and you didn't have to certainly didn't have to necessarily think very scientifically. And you know mm-hmm. when we got, when we pushed that envelope with the lab and allowing the lab to fail. And getting that feedback from the students about how what their discomfort was, it really actually helped yeah. us reframe all of <clears throat> what we were doing and ask the question, the bigger, broader questions of if this is how if they view getting results or not getting results as the end of the lab, they don't understand the yes. process of science because science is right. not about getting an answer to be done; it's to get an answer to open up and ask additional questions. And right, if you don't right. get the results, that immediately allows you to ask questions. Why didn't we get a result? Right. Why are these results unusual? And so I, I, I really um, I look forward to you going through the process because um, I, I, I know personally that was part of the journey for me of both seeing my students' level of discomfort and their inability in as a whole. And I don't want to paint all my students because some of my students were like, very, they, they, got, they loved the process and they were like really enjoyed all of the steps and they were like, wow, that was just a cool experience. And you talk to those kids and they, their, their sum of the Wabaki project was, yeah, that was cool. We got to play with all these techniques. We all did all these things. We ran all these techniques and then, yeah, it didn't work, but, and they are totally positive. And then other students, you ask mm-hmm. them and they're like, that was a failure. Oh, that Wabaki thing. Yeah. Was a complete waste of time. Like, yeah. And so I, to me, that was really Depends important. on your perspective. Yeah. But it also means, you know, as teachers, we get to frame a lot. And so it was really good to frame those things. So, mm-hmm. all right. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to, I'm going to ask you my last word. We're, we're, we're pushing an hour. So I'm going to end up doing some heavy editing here <laughs> to get <laughs> us down. It's a great conversation. So, um, I, I would, I want to ask you, uh, when you're not teaching, what do you like to do? Oh, oh my gosh. So that's a good question. <laughs> I think, I mean, given that I'm a parent also, I think instinctively you're always teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so, yeah, we live in the woods, and right now, as I'm listening, I can hear my husband and my son chopping wood. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there's all of the outside activities. Um, so, you know, 
if, if it were just me, um, I love I love the outdoors, like many other bio people do. I mean, my focus was wildlife and fisheries biology, conservation and management. And, you know, I love to hike. I love to walk. I love to be outdoors. I'm outside right now. Uh, I'm strolling around with my empty cup of coffee now. Um, and I like to water ski. I like to kneeboard. I like to camp. I like to hike. It's It's the outside, definitely the outside for me. Um, I always I have a little bit of an artsy gene, um, but I don't tap into it as often as I was as often as I would like. Uh, so that's it. That's it. And you know, lots of you know, lots of friends, lots of family. Yeah. All good things. That sounds very <clears throat> sounds very relaxing. We're not that far apart, so I am not outside. You know, I think you have. I think you have to be like when you. You know, a very close friend of mine. She's an accountant. You know, couldn't get much more different from what she does in a day from what I do in a day. You know, and on her weekends, like, they're traveling all over the place. They're sitting in traffic. They're here, there, they're everywhere. And in my head, I'm like, oh, my gosh. How do you do that on a weekend? Like, I just, I want to just sit out tonight. I just want to hang out for the weekend. You know, my, my children have their activities. My daughter does pole vaulting. My son's a gymnast. Like, yeah. they have their things to do. Um, and she, she looked at me and she said, well, that's because you deal with people all day. Yeah. I don't. <laughs> and I think that's true that when you're a teacher, um, especially when you teach at the high school age and you have colleagues, I mean, your job is so focused around working with people that at the end of the day, you are emotionally drained. Yeah, and by be. the time the weekend, the time the weekend rolls around, all you can do is recharge your batteries. That's it. All right. So uh, do you have any questions for me before we get to our picks of the episode? Yes. Why are you doing all this? <laughs> Why am I doing all this? So I've told this story a couple of different times. So um, it, it's sort of a long story, but, I, you know, I, it was at the um, NABT conference um, last year where I had sat down after uh, doing a presentation with a group of other teachers who were in the same project as me. And I sat down and um, I'm a podcast junkie. I love listening to podcasts. And I had this phenomenal conversation. It was your typical roundtable kind of conversation with four teachers just talking about what we do and where we do it and that sort of thing. And I thought, wow, after that conversation, that would make a great podcast to sit down with a group of other teachers and throw a topic out. And this happened to be a group of teachers who taught in very different places. So, you know, me, mm -hmm. I'm, in, I'm in your Boston suburb, you know, sort of affluent suburb. Um, there was a teacher mm -hmm. from New Jersey. There was a teacher from East Los Angeles. There was a teacher from St. Louis. And we taught in very different schools. We had very different demographics of students. We taught all kinds of different levels. We had, you know, s slightly different sort of pathways before we got in the classroom, different levels of experience. Um, you know, and we, we brought these very different perspectives. And we agreed on some things, but we disagreed on some things. And I thought about, you know, that would be just a really cool way of having a podcast. And then I looked at it and I thought about it for a while and I realized that technologically it was a really challenging thing to record something like that. And mm -hmm. then through a variety of processes, I talked about this on uh, the, the podcast with um, David Kanofsky, who runs uh, a two-person podcast where it's the same two people every, every week. Um, mm -hmm. I, I realized they were already sort of doing a two-person one. And I was like, well, what could it be different? And then I, I, I opened up a, a, a blank Google Doc and said, if I wanted to interview teachers, um, how many teachers do I know who teach in different settings that I'd love to sit down and have that sort of conversation that you have at professional development, you know, that on the side lunchtime conversation 
you know the one that mm. we're, we're at the BioBuilder workshop and we were sitting there for three or four days and we're going through all this stuff and then they pull the box, box lunches out and you happen to be sitting at a table and I'm sitting next to you and uh, you know I'm pulling up my email and, uh, and that and then we start talking about something, something that we're working on, something that we're thinking about for the upcoming year. And we have this half hour conversation that not only helps, you know, me talk about the thing that I'm working on, but allows me to reflect on other things because there's a different perspective that I'm bouncing this off of. And I, I said, if I could do that and I could talk to, you know, all these people I've met and, and hear about the various things they're working on, that would be really valuable for me. And if I mm-hmm. posted it out and other people liked it or other people thought about it, um, that'd be, that'd be great. So <clears throat> that was, that was sort of the, the, the idea behind the, the podcast and, there's also, you know, teachers who I only know through, you know, Twitter or I only know yeah. through, you know, uh, Facebook uh, or yeah, some other online community who I, I don't ever talk to. Um, I only know right. them digitally, but um, it would be great to sit down and, and have a conversation with those people because I have a glimpse at what they're what they're like and what their teaching is like. But I don't you know, it, it's not always possible to sit down and have those conversations with those people. So, um, again, right. I'm, I'm mostly doing it for me, but um you know, push my, my thinking and my reflecting, but hopefully it also helps other people. At least the other person I'm talking to is getting that, uh, once, a, you know, in that one conversation, maybe some other teachers uh, benefit from hearing it as well. Gotcha. Sounds good. So yeah, it's been Sounds very good. It's been a blast. I uh, said, you know, we're nine episodes in. Um, so I, you know, getting through October, will be through nine episodes. And then I figure by the end of the school year, I will be at 24 or 25 episodes. And then at that point I'll decide, you know, do I got you know? Do I have gas in the tank? Have I built any momentum? I still will not have been through my list at that point. Um, mm-hmm. I, said, I have a list. I, li- I have a list <laughs> of people that I keep adding to um, that are people are interesting that I'd like to add in. And I could easily go through this on two years. I'll probably reevaluate after a year. And you know, maybe this does turn into one of those roundtable type conversations where I start yeah. to pull in two or three other people on a topic. And maybe you know, I think it's it's hard to ask other people to commit to a, a, a regular mm. schedule, particularly people who are in different places in the country. But I could yeah. see a situation where maybe I move it into a round table where I pull three or four people in and say, hey, I'm thinking about doing this topic. You know, you want to get on a, a Google Hangout or a, a Skype and get several different people together and record the conversation um, and, and give that a shot. Um, so I, I maybe I'll, I'll do something like that. But so far, it's been it's been great hearing um, sort of these cool. long form conversations Fun. with people. So great. So. Um, I don't know if you've had a chance to to pull together a pick of the week. Um, anything that's jumped out to you in the in the news that you might want to share? Um, honestly, the thing that's on my mind right now is question for other teachers in Massachusetts is question two. <laughs> oh yeah, question two. Right, so right. You want to see talk? where question. Yeah, just to see where this is going to go, and so question two lifts the cap on charter schools in Massachusetts, yep. and um, you know people could go and read the way it, you know, and actually read the way it's drafted and the way it's written. But the the bottom line is, is that if we open up more charter schools, that opens up more choice. And we always say that, you know, choice is spectacular when you have more choice and that's wonderful. But the problem will be is that it will drain money away from a public school. And the problem, and, you know, and on paper, it sounds fine to say, okay, if we lose, you know, a hundred students, from this public school and they go to that charter school and, you know, all, let's say, you know, if we round it out into simple numbers, right. And we say, okay, it's a thousand dollars a student 
and all that money will just now go to the charter school instead of the public school. Okay, so it seems logical and it seems fine. But the problem is, is that that public school still has to run its operating budget. You still have to, you know, pay for the same amount of electricity, the same amount of water, the same amount of maintenance, the upkeep for all of the things that you've had all along. And what, what is going to get cut now that all that funding is being siphoned away? What is going to get cut? And it's going to be specialty programs. It's going to be that science club that gets cut. It's going to be that those fourth grade music lessons. It's going to be, it's going to be, you know, the engineering team. It's going to be the robotics team. It's mm. going to be world language for sixth graders. It's going to be a program that gets cut so that a person gets cut. It's not going to be simple across the board. Like, yeah. and, and you're, and what sense does it make? to spread the money all around so that nobody gets enough yeah. and think about your, and think about your kid. Like, let's say it's your kid and you want your kid to go to this new charter school because you think it's better than the public school. Okay, great. If you, what if your kid doesn't win the lottery? What if your kid doesn't get a space in that charter school? Then what happens? Your kid is going to the, to the public high school with a third of the resources that it used to have. Now, what does that look like? Yeah. And, well, and the other interesting thing about this in Massachusetts is, um, you know, Massachusetts actually has pretty strong charter schools, um, particularly if you right. compare nationally. And I actually think part of the reason that the charter schools in Massachusetts are relatively strong is because the standards of charter schools have been very high. And right. the process to get a charter in Massachusetts has been, it's been very rigorous. Um, right. And, I, there, and there are charters out there that haven't been used, too. Yeah. Yeah, like so, there are real numbers to that. Yeah, there, it's it's an interesting. I, I I'm I am not um, I'm I'm not in disagreement with you at all. So uh, the I think the the take home uh, from Joanne's message is uh, vote no on two if you're in Massachusetts, um, <laughs> which which would yeah. change the law. To me, it, it it's a it's an illogical argument in the sense that we have a pretty good charter system in Massachusetts, and we could get into you know, the validity of charters and the ethics of charters. And uh, there's a lot That's of... That's another conversation. There's a whole other conversation. But it, it's a strange vote in the sense that um, in Massachusetts, not all the charters are currently being used. And the right. the the reason our charters are are good in Massachusetts, particularly if you compare it to other states who... I don't know if you saw the John Oliver uh, video where he did, broke down charter schools. Somebody was floating that around on social media couple of weeks ago, there are states where it's like a wild west to get a charter and there's tons and tons of charters and it's tons of money getting floated away and some really sketchy charter schools. Massachusetts charter schools are not like that. Um, it's, it's, no, a, it's, no, a lo- it's a yeah. lot of work to get a charter in Massachusetts, a lot of work to maintain it. There's a lot of very good teachers who teach in the charters in Massachusetts. Yeah, um, absolutely. And so I think that the charter system in Massachusetts is very strong and this law doesn't make a ton of sense to me unless you're looking at it from a... I'm a company that runs charters and I can open up more charters and so I can make more money running that because I don't really see privatization. Yeah. Yeah. I don't really see privatization of education. Here it comes. (laughs) I don't really see this as a win for the charters um, or necessarily a win for students. I think that right now Massachusetts are really nice checks and balances system in, in with charters and, and is sort of one of the leading States on education for a lot of reasons. And that's one of the reasons so um, I think the Absolutely. the no vote sort of keeps the status quo. And if you look at Massachusetts compared to other states in the country, or if we were our own country itself, our schools are very highly ranked in the world. Um, 
But you know what? But what's going to happen, though, is that we're looking at districts that are the needier districts. You know, if you, if they opened up a charter school in the middle of where you and I teach in, you know, the Boston suburbs, it's not going to have much of an impact on us because we yeah. teach in strong schools. And most parents are not going to say, hey, I want my child to leave Acton-Boxborough. I want my child to leave Westboro schools. They're not going to say that. We're looking at communities where they have needier districts or um and so what's going to happen is if they are able to get a charter or pull a charter and they're able to get a school running, you know, if your child does not get into that new charter, that's going to be devastating yeah. because now you're, you're in a, a needy district that's now even needier because, you know, you've lost a third of your funding. I mean, what, and I think that like, that is the biggest problem is that if we, and, and I, you know, I was talking to a friend of, or through social media, her children go to a charter school, which is a great charter school. Uh, and so she is on the other side of it. She's like, no, 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 we, sh- we, we should vote yes. And, I'm like, and I, and I, I don't want to go back and she's my friend. I don't want to go yeah. back and forth too much. Um, but what, but what you're, it's great for you and for your personal setting, yeah. but it's not good for the state as a whole. And I think that that's how you vote has to go. It's like, that's why you need to vote no on too, because it's not good for our state as a whole for the, for most or nearly all students. It might, it might make no difference to some small communities, but it's going to make a huge difference to the neediest communities in Massachusetts. Yeah. All right. Well, my pick went a totally different direction, um, although there is some controversy with it. Um, And so my pick was uh, the story that came out this week of the first uh, child born with three biological parents. I don't know if you've seen this story out there. Um, I have not. Ah, yes. So uh, in Mexico, um, this fertility doctor, and this is a fertility doctor who's been involved with a couple of other controversial attempts um, uh, for reproductive technology. Uh, But basically... uh, had a woman who had a history of a mitochondrial disease. Uh, and so, so what they did is they took, they, uh, they took the, the nucleus out and basically created a new egg where they replaced the mitochondria um, wow. from that egg by, by switching over the, the nucleus in, and then uh, the father was the, the third. So the child is born with three biological parents. So I, I put a link to the popular science article and also uh, an article from New Scientist. Um, in there, but yeah, this popped out, and I think this is about you know we're recording this in in early October. Um, this came out the last week of September. Uh, this story popped out, so uh, really interesting. You know, if you want a little hook about uh, mitochondria or a little hook on you know meiosis or a little hook on um, sexual reproduction, this might be a nice little Go interesting on. story. Um, I used to teach a bioethics course, so. These type of things. Ethics was where I was going on this yeah. one. Yep. Yeah. These, uh, wait. I used to teach a bioethics course, and so this type of article would have completely been, you know, roped in. I, Perfect. I used, to, I used to do a lot of reproductive technology pieces because, you know, I mentioned mm. I mentioned Wild West about charter schools in some place. Reproductive technologies in the United States is still a bit of a Wild West where there's not a lot of regulation out there. I mean, aside from saying you can't clone somebody, um, there's a lot that's out there, and and there's you know. Uh, a lot of money to be made in this and a lot of promises that are being made. And, and I think, again, mm-hmm. similarly, there's people who are in the right place in their heart. They're trying to start families and, you know, their heart's in the right place. Um, but there are also some larger ethical questions that happen about, you know, what happens when a, a couple goes down to Mexico, as was mm. in this case, in order to find a reproductive technology that would allow them to to have a child. And you know, how do people feel about this? And then also, 
are there any ethical implications, um, you know, for that family, for other people who are going through reproductive technology, for the child um, himself? In this case, it was a, a son that was born. Um, you know, our, our, when we're experimenting on uh, creating um, new embryos, um, there is certainly a component I, of experimentation. So lots of fascinating. I am looking I, forward to reading that. Yeah, so that'll be. That'll be, that's my little pick. I thought it was a, a fascinating story, and I could see people tying that in a lot of different places. So, yeah, certainly, certainly. All right, Joanne, this was great. This was a nice, it was a really long conversation. Um, I want to list my little credits here. Uh, so uh, the music that you'll hear on Life of the School podcast is provided by X Magicians and Jake Jenkins. You can uh, go to lifeoftheschool.org and see show notes. You can also subscribe to the show at there or provide feedback there. Or you could go and subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or really any other place where you download podcasts. So uh, this will be our second episode of October. Our next episode will come out in early November. And so thank you again, Joanne, for joining me, and I will talk to everybody soon. You're welcome. Thank you. 